0: There isn't a single company that isn't pivoting in some way. Everybody has lost revenue. Everybody's challenged whether the marketplace has shifted or not. So it's like we're all trying to figure it out. If you think your job is to figure it out as a leader, you're playing whack-a-mole and you've given more to your people than you've ever given before. Now they're dropping balls. You don't know how to manage this. Imagine now stopping and shifting the responsibility into the fabric of the team. David, you know Tony Shea from Zappos. Tony read the book, was one of the first CEOs at the front of the line that said, this co-elevation is the operating system under which I need as the emotional operating system and the mindset operating system under which Holacracy is going to work at Zappos. So he had me come into the company and and work with him there. Because if you're going to start flattening organizations and start empowering individuals to innovate and to break through and to bring in outside thinking, You cannot keep a chokehold on it from authority and a hub-and-spoke leadership.
1: Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf.
2: Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago.
1: One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that, can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work
2: your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential.
1: All right, welcome to this episode of the 15.5 Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. I'm Shane Metcalf. And we are here with Keith Ferrazzi. Keith, so awesome to have you. Many of you may know Keith, but he is the founder and CEO of Ferrazzi Greenlight. Uh, management consulting and team coaching company that works with many of the world's biggest corporations, graduated from Harvard Business School, rose to become the youngest CMO of a Fortune 500 company during his career at Deloitte, and became CMO of Starwood Hotels, a uh, frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Fortune, and uh, number one New York Times bestselling author of some books I actually have here behind me. Keith, welcome to the show. Really good to have you.
0: Thank you. Good to see you again. And David, it's been too long.
1: It has been.
2: Yeah, Keith, you, you know, I think you've influenced both me and David quite a bit, but I definitely, I don't know if it was your first book, Never Eat Alone, but reading that back in the day really did uh, give me some, probably an edge in actually meeting David and allowing me to actually participate in co-creating this company for the last uh, nine years, so thank you for that. Because I think that actually some of those, some of the perspectives you shared in that book, really have led to to some big impact in my life.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate that, and I look forward to the founder shares.
2: No promises there, man. Uh, let's see how let's see how good this podcast is. All right, you <laughs> can talk. Deal, deal, deal. Um, so you got a new book coming out. I would love to hear a little bit about that.
0: So it's my first leadership book. Very excited about it, actually. So if you think about the arc of my writing, to some extent, they have not been particularly intermixed with the work that I do. So Never It Alone was really just a historical book about how do you create opportunity for yourself in a world where you know things aren't handed to you. You've got to build an effective, generous serving network of folks, right? That that create. Abundance in your life. And that happened to me as a poor kid from Pittsburgh. And I was sitting at my dad's table, uh, unemployed steelworker father back in the 70s, the steel industry crashing around us. And I used to hear stories from my dad about how the foremen and the folks at work, they just didn't want to, they didn't care about frontline employee input. And I made a commitment early on in my life that I was going to do something like that, about that. I was going to grow up, I was going to be a politician, I thought. I thought by being a politician, I'd be able to make sure that families like ours, you know, didn't get this unemployment and, and disruption. And I'd, I'd make American industry strong again. Those were the words of a young man in, in Pittsburgh. And then over the years, what I discovered was that there's so much to be said about the value of peer to peer and peer engagement in transforming organizations, And um, I started a firm called Farazi Greenlight, intended to focus on the human capital side of growth. And it was very much focused on this idea of peers coaching peers will break through in success. It's really embedded from things that my father had said when I was young. And I got involved in things like total quality management, process improvement teams, etc., Slowly but surely, that migrated to the the center of the organization, to the executive team. And my whole focus is focusing on teams being a word that I launch in the new book, co-elevating. A team needs to have a commitment to a mission, but also a commitment to each other. A team needs to find the value from being in the team. 71% of those who are on teams say that they do not get value from being on the team. They serve in the team but they don't get value from the team. Um, 74% of people on teams would say that they do not have permission to challenge each other in the room. So I started realizing how, and this is a lot of the research that we do. We've done 20 years of research now on high-performing teams and how do you coach high-performing teams. And to me, a part of that is just getting the executives on that team to own each other's success, own each other's feedback, own each other's collaboration, own each other's challenging, own each other's, lifting each other's energy up, caring about each other, willing and and focusing on crossing the finish line together, right? And so that's so different than the traditional hierarchy of leadership, where, you know, a head of marketing is seeing the product and doesn't feel they have permission to redesign the product because the head of product doesn't want them in their shorts, right? I mean, the idea is that we've got to, ignore boundaries of authority and control and we've got to start leading without authority, leading with a a North Star that is co-created by the team. Now, you know I, that really was the essence of the book. And what I didn't realize, which is so funny, I look back on never Read Alone, which is a book about networking. And what I'm really writing about when I'm writing about this book, and this didn't come to me until halfway through writing this book, was that we are showing up today in work, and we are living and working in networks. Anything you want to get done, it has nothing to do about what resources you control. It's the network of people you're engaging with and enabling and enlisting to create extraordinary things. So what I'm trying to, what I, what I realized was the guy who wrote Never It Alone about networking now is writing the leadership book about how we're working in networks. And so that's why 23 CEOs of major companies you all will well know when you read the book have deemed this book as an operating system for the new work world. And I'm really excited about
2: it. Well, and Keith, it's so interesting. It really maps really well to our best self-management philosophy, where the idea is that instead of just managing people of saying, hey, this is the company's objectives, we're hiring you, we're going to suck the bone marrow out of you to, to maximize shareholder value. And it actually flips it and says, look, you know, me and David are talking about this. It's, it's kind of an evolution of servant leadership of saying, hey, this is still about us. Winning as a business, but we are committed to your self-actualization as a human being. We're committed to you actually being a better version of yourself by the time you walk out the door.
0: I would just go one step further. And I know your software does this as well, but the next step that I would go is that I believe that the this, this servant leadership needs to not just be up and down, it needs to be peer to peer. That's yes. the key we've yeah. got. So Ray Dalio writes this book about principles and he talks about feedback and, and et cetera. But it's easy if you're Ray Dalio and you can hire assholes because Ray Dalio hires a bunch of hard driving, challenging, highly resilient financial you know, individuals and there's so many friends of mine who I've known have gone into an organization and just rebounded out like that. And it's because they have an ethos of resilience and they will shoot you in the head in a meeting, right? And that's how they hire. Now, for the rest of the organizations which hire normal, insecure people like me, you can't have that as just, you can't just walk in and turn a switch and say, okay, we're all going to give each other feedback. You've got to build that, and I, there's a there's a chapter in the book that uh, i I invented a new I invented a number of new words. Coelevation was my word. I was so surprised that that word hadn't existed. going higher together, I know yes. And the other word I created because I had to I did to do this in the course of my my coaching was uh, porosity. I used to be a chemical engineer at uh, Imperial Chemical Industries many years ago, and like wood is porous, it absorbs glass, not so porous, right? You need to make the people around you open to your message, porous. Great leadership is a part of opening others to your leadership. Now, if you're you're relying on hierarchy, then you don't need that. But that's not going to work either these days because most most kids that work for you don't give a damn about your hierarchy. And yet what I'm talking about is leadership now is peer-to-peer leadership. How do you teach your folks to lead peer-to-peer? And that is the essence of the book, and that was the germination of the reason to write this book. I originally started, by the way, trying to write a book about peer to peer coaching. What I said was, every relationship we have has coaching in it, right? That was my principle. Every relationship we have, you and your spouse have a coaching relationship. You may not be very good at that with your spouse, um, but you, but it's a coaching relationship, and I, I really meant that. Like every relationship, I,
1: I think I'm really good. She doesn't Isn't think that I'm that good. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> she should read the book then. she should read the book do you think do you think it, it, there's a big difference between say like senior leadership teams and other cross functional teams of different managers did, did you find a difference between uh, folks in different kind of stature and roles in organizations
0: yes and no i mean what i find is the higher up in the organization the more pig headed people get which is why i get paid money to be at those executive can teams can you define
2: pig headed pig headed <laughs> the technical definition uh, just
0: <laughs> obstinate I mean, I could go as far as narcissistic, but obstinate and stuck in their ways, et cetera. Um, Just look, I mean, even just simply the the principle of development, I mean, the very senior leadership doesn't think of itself as getting a lot of it or needing a lot of it. And in in the day of transformation that we're in today, we need a ton of it. There's a little exercise I do when I'm coaching a team and I talk about it in the book. Uh, I say, how many of you think that you have to grow as a leader, both your hard skills and your soft skills by, by what? What percentage do you think you have to grow as a leader in order to meet the market demands today? And I let them argue about this. Most of them come up with somewhere between 20 and 30 percent, right? Some industries, they say 50 if they're going through a major, major transformation with outside pressures. And then I say, OK, raise your hand if you agree with that number. Everybody raised their hand. And I said, keep them up. Now look around. How many of you think that it's your job to get your peers there? And I'll bring your hands down. Now think about that. You know, Shane, I don't know who your CMO is, but is it your job to make your CMO better? And is your Absolutely. C- and is your CMO's job to make you better? Now we say that, but bullshit if we do it, we don't.
1: Yeah. We just don't. But I would actually argue, you know, it's interesting because we have this ethos of best self-management. And my belief is that as leaders, we have to be focused on ourselves first and becoming our best selves and then supporting our teams. But I, you know, I think we have thought about it as, you know, the leadership helps the leadership team, leadership team helps their teams. But I don't think we've put a lot of thought into the piece. It's a whole
0: new idea. It really is. I think I'm, I'm, I think I got something really unique here. But what, I, what I've been finding is that the essence of this, this is General Motors' chief financial officer said that the essence of this principle was the reason they didn't go back into bankruptcy. You know, there's uh, another example in here of one particular company that was able to add 20% to their share price from this. There was another company that adopted this and, and went from being told by bankers they couldn't do an IPO to having one of the most successful IPOs. And 20 share points, not percentage points, 20 share dollars higher than they had expected to to go out with.
2: So Keith, can we talk a little bit about why the old model of hierarchy is not only dysfunctional in good times, but in the current pandemic, the current uh, new world of work, why it's even more, le- uh, you know, it's... it's, it's- unbelievably ill-suited for this. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Um,
0: Well, it's simple. I think any of us who are leaders and all of us are probably listening to this call in some way. And hopefully, that's, by the way, the other thing. When I was at Deloitte, I was a kid in my early 20s and I became chief marketing officer before I was 30. That's leading without authority. And the same formula applies in this book. And so I really, I write the book on two different dimensions at the same time. I write the book for executives who got to let go thinking that the only way they succeed is by gaining more authority and control in order to be transformational. And I write it for those without positional or titled authority in terms of how do they become uh, bona fide leaders in the company, right? So it's for both of those. The answer to your question, though, is I think, you know, any of us must feel right now that we're running around playing whack-a-mole. How difficult it is right now to keep up with everything we're trying to do. There isn't a single company that isn't pivoting in some way. Everybody has lost revenue. Everybody's challenged whether the marketplace has shifted or not. So it's like we're all trying to figure it out. If you think your job is to figure it out as a leader, and you're playing whack-a-mole, and you've given more to your people than you've ever given before. And now they're dropping balls. You don't know how to manage this. Imagine now stopping and shifting the responsibility into the fabric of the team. David, you know Tony Shea from Zappos. Yeah. Tony read the book. It was one of the first CEOs at the front of the line that said, this co-elevation is the operating system under which I need as the emotional operating system and the mindset operating system under which Holacracy is going to work at Zappos.
1: So he oh, had me wow. come
0: into the company and, and work with him there. Because if you're going to start flattening organizations and start empowering individuals to innovate and to break through and to bring in outside thinking, you cannot keep a chokehold on it from authority and hub-and-spoke leadership.
2: To me, it doesn't sound like you're saying you need to actually blow up the hierarchical org chart in order to apply these principles. And that's what I think is really interesting around some of the the uh, the different models that we have been implemented is it's like, oh, it's a little too complex. And you know what? We actually don't want to completely depart from the org structure. And so can you talk a little bit around, well, how do the principles can still inform well,
0: look, I leave it to my alma mater, Deloitte, to figure that stuff out, right? There, there's, there's a lot of people out there who are going to get paid a lot of money to figure out the new org design models and whatever else, Holacracy Light or whatever it is. Listen, all I care about is that one individual in your company who has a transformational vision starts by saying, I've got a transformational vision. This is sort of the process. I've got a transformational vision. Now, I'm going to go to my first team member. So let's say it's, you know, I'm the chief marketing officer. I'm the head of HR. I don't give a damn who you are. You have a transformational vision around the future of the product today, right? And you then start going to your peers and saying, you know, we are going to have to pivot. What are you thinking we need to do? And you start to co-create a vision. You don't go to a person and, and I there's, there's a chapter in here. In my first book, I talk about uh, balance is bullshit. Because I basically say, you got to live a blended life to be full, you know? And I, in this book, I'd say buy-in is bullshit. So maybe there's some, I have to figure out what the next one will be for
2: the next book. But So you're saying the bullshit is part of your brand. My brand is bullshit,
0: yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But the buy-in is bullshit is that I am sick and tired of people creating answers in their head or in their silos and then going out to sell it to people.
2: You have totally
0: missed... The innovation co-creation. Now, who taught me that was Peter Diamandis. Peter's one of my best friends, uh, head, founder of the X Prize, Singularity University, writer of the book Bold, Abundance, etc. Just a brilliant guy. But what he what he taught me was the power of crowdsourcing, the power of inclusion to get extraordinary thinking. And there's not enough leaders have the power of inclusion in their in their process. They are fearful that inclusion will lead to consensus. And consensus Hmm. is that mealy mushy shit that everybody fears isn't bold. But the reality of the way I try to teach it in leading without authority is you invite bold, but then you reserve the capacity to make bold choices too. So you don't try to plague it. And a part of that is a shifting of the contract. If somebody gives you bold input, you say thank you, but you make it clear that it's yours to take that as a piece of data. Feedback is data. It's not a directive. So if you're giving feedback peer-to-peer, unlike when a boss gives, so if David gave Shane feedback, then there's some implication that there is an authority or directive associated with that feedback, right? But if Shane gave the CMO feedback, then the assumption is that Shane gives a damn enough to give feedback, right? But the CMO controls what to do with it. There's a reason. Well, is that because
2: it's not actually my job to give the, Give someone one it of my biggest feedback to give
0: it, but it's not your right to expect it'll be
1: used. And and so is that new social contract? What would have say a VP of marketing uh, or a VP of products not feel threatened yeah, by the idea? Exactly. That, right?
0: And I facilitate these in forums of teams, so I don't believe in executive coaching as much. I mean, I've got an executive coach, but I don't believe in what we do is not executive coaching. We team coach. So in the room, when I'm in the room with the team, I am saying, "Okay, let's do let's do an open 360. So everybody, we're going to go around the room and everybody is going to say to David, we always start with the CEO. David, what I most admire about you is X. Everyone's going to tell you. Right. And then everyone's going to say, David, because I care about you and I'm committed to uh, our success and you're so important to our success, I might suggest. And everybody gives you feedback. But I might suggest is different than you need to. Right? right? And then all, everybody does the same for Shane. And all of a sudden, you start to open up peer to peer feedback in very safe uh, safe environments. What I teach in, in leading without authority is how do you, without having me in the room as a coach, how do you, Shane, start to facilitate this kind of dialogue on a project team of transformation that allows you to be the tipping point of changing the whole damn company? But you're really... But nobody... Nobody thinks of you as that because the the other wonderful lesson is the first person you invite into your transformational team, you're inviting them into their team, not yours. While you're alone, it's your team. But the first person you invite in, that's the difference between that and buy-in, right? Buy-in is you're inviting them into your team. Leading without authority is you're inviting them into their team.
2: Huh. So how how do you address this in a situation and perhaps a culture of fear where feedback typically is seen as threatening? And especially if peers are giving you feedback, it's because they're trying to take you down and there's a lot of internal competition. And so it isn't actually going to be seen as, oh, you're in this for me. You actually want me to succeed. I have to climb the ladder and that's always at somebody else's expense. So
0: There's a whole chapter called serve, share and care it's an entire chapter focused on how do you earn permission to give that kind of feedback. And it starts by having that person totally recognize that you're in service of them. You can't have this contract. If you're if the person you're giving the feedback to thinks of you as competitive, you've got to assuage yes. that you've got to work. You've got to work. And this is the thing that I I, I say to people. There's, I was, I was working with, the, with this one team, this Irish guy. I don't know. I, I didn't, why I said he was Irish, but he sort of leaned on this. He said, oh, I'm Irish, and I just say what I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> right, right. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. That'll be good because I'm, I'm a big proponent of candor, right? And then what I realized was I said to him after the second meeting, I said, I said, Sean, it's actually Sean, not Shane. Sean, um, you know what I realized? Your desire to say what you're thinking is lazy. You're doing none of the hard work to make sure what you're thinking lands appropriately on people. Right. You're, you're either lazy or you're a jackass.
2: And I'm not sure which you are. I was just saying this to him. Hey, this is exactly David's feedback to me two, like two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: the, the point that I'm trying to make is, I mean, by the way, this is the kind of coaching I do. Like, I don't take any bullshit. My job is to get this team in a short period of time to transform. Done. That's my job. Right. By yeah. the time I leave, they have rebooted their social contract. I love the fact that you use that word, David, I don't know if you had read it in the preamble of the book, but that's exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about totally a rebooting of the social contract. There's three stages to rebooting a contract. And I walk you through it in the book. One stage of rebooting the contract is getting people to awaken. Oh, oh. So they know that, that raising hand exercise, that's an awakening moment. Oh, oh wait. No, I don't really think it's my job to help that person be successful. It is not my responsibility. Should it be? Why would it be, right? That's powerful. The awakening aha moments. And I have eight attributes of a high-performing co-elevating team that uh-huh. we coach to. It's great. Right? And peer-to-peer development is just one of them. So the awakening is first. And I have a diagnostic. And it, by the way, if you want to, I know you all are very focused these days on virtual teams. In 2012, I did a ton of research, $2 million worth on high-performing teams in a remote world. And nobody gave a damn. <laughs> Spin ahead and people give a damn. Eric at Zoom named me the leading thinker in the area of remote teams. And so I've been doing a bunch of stand-ups over there at Zoom. But I've, I've created a website called virtualteamswin.com and I put all of the resources that we have there. And one of the things that's there is a guideline on how to do a light social contract discussion with your team and i have all eight of those areas and some questions you ask your team the problem is you all know and shane is the chief culture officer you know this the problem is awakening isn't anything until you turn it into practice right so once you get people to awaken to a new contract they you going to follow it really quick with practices like that open 360 the first time somebody does an open 360, they think they're going to die. Then they were like, wow, that was very beneficial. So keep adding the practices. And that's what well, really you know, and, and
2: I love it because, it, you know, I think there is unspoken social contracts about don't actually tell the truth to people to their face.
0: Yeah, well, 74. I think I told you this. Seventy four percent of teams say they can't challenge each other. Right. Well, conflict avoidance. And there's a whole candor is one of my categories of eight. And one of the practices, I created this thing called uh, Yoda moment. You know Yoda, right? Yep. A little Yoda character. Yoda is, to me, the all-wise character. Now, I say to my teams, the wisdom of Yoda exists in every team, but we just don't hear it. And this is the big awakening that I've been working with my teams on is right now, as you look around the marketplace, your team can pivot right now. You know, it can find unexpected growth and it can find unsuspected risk, but you've got to stop being the bottleneck for success of your team by how you run the team. If you don't turn the team into a co-elevating social contract and then get into those practices and the great news about this remote environment is there's lots of tools we use. So what I do is in the middle of a meeting, I'll stop the team and I'll say, Hey, wait a second, I want to do a Yoda moment. And what I do is I take the team and I say, stop, what is not being said today? What are you thinking, but you wouldn't dare say, right? Now, crickets, fine. So I push a button and I send everybody in the breakout rooms. And I say, you're going to go into a breakout room and you're going to come back in 10 minutes. And the two or three of you will have found whatever it is you believe needs to be said that isn't being said, right? And they come back in and they do. Because in small group, you've got psychological safety. Yes. And they have real dialogue. And then they're afraid of looking like cowards or low integrity because we've all recontracted up front and said that it is high integrity as a professional to speak our our voices in a room. And if they don't, then they're violating the social contract. So, again, that's a practice. You social recontract. And that whole recontracting is at virtualteamswin.com. But you wouldn't be able to do it as easily if it's at a physical meeting. I love remote meetings. I think that, I call it a remote reboot. We have the ability in the next two months while we're remote to totally recontract our DNA as a team, right? To institute these rules in our leadership group and to emerge, I think, so much stronger than we ever were before.
1: To support you and your team and your company in this transition to remote work, I want to share some great resources we have that can help. If you go to 155.com slash resources, you can find all the recorded webinars we've done on remote work. At 155.com slash academy, we have Vital Skills for Managers, which includes our Best Self-Manager certification program, which is a free course that all of your managers can take around Best Self-Management. At 155.com services, we've got many leadership resources available, like our remote work essentials workshop. And we're also giving away free extended access to 155 to teams, departments, and organizations of up to 50 people through June 15th of 2020. You can find that at 155.com slash get started. I want to dig in on something. So you mentioned that guy, Sean, for example. So. Yeah you know, we, we all know people who lean on candor. We, you know, we had, we had some, some team members internally hear about the concept of radical candor yeah. and they thought, well, I should just be radical with my candor, but they missed the point that you're actually supposed to bring candor with care. So we, we talk about, you know, internally as truth with kindness, uh, you know, to that call point, it caring and shan- candor,
0: Yeah,
1: right, exactly. So same concept. Um, now if you've got a bunch of people who are operating in that mode, they're creating a lack of psychological safety in the teams So how do you build that site? Is it it simply just recontracting or is there something else that you need to do to build more psychological safety so someone is even willing to recontract?
0: So the relational underpinning is important. When I used to do my physical team coaching, we would have dinner the night before. Hmm. And the dinner the night before was not a stereotypical business dinner where you, you pour wine and you bullshit and talk and blah, blah, blah. I curate deep, open, vulnerable conversation about the team. Not about the team behavior, but about the team members. One of the most powerful questions that breed empathy, because what I'm trying to do is I'm using vulnerability to open empathy. So you might have that jackass on the team that everybody feels a little concerned about. But then when you find out what his upbringing was, when you find out, you know, about the alcoholic father. There's a lot of forgiveness that's given. And the question that I ask is, what experience of your past do you think significantly contributes to who you are today? And then I share. You know, and I have no problem with vulnerability. I consider it courageous. I've learned that over the years. That I I, I always wince a bit when people judge me for never eat alone, because that was a young, insecure guy who certainly knew how to manage a network but wasn't as open and vulnerable as, as I am able to be today as a more secure yeah. individual. But today I have no problem with, you know, leading. So if, if you're going to be a leader without authority, you've got to be able to w- lead with vulnerability so that you invite yes. people in not to be intimidated, to share themselves, to open, to be empathetic. That's your job now, right? So the, all the stuff, like I said, I wanted to write a book that gave everybody the tools that I've been using for 20 years to coach some of the most extraordinary teams and executives in the world. I wanted to put the tools in everybody's hands, whether it's a awesome. young person coming into a company or a C-suite individual wanting to be the precipitator
1: of change in the company. It's great. Yeah, we we, we often talk about this term of vulneragious. Uh, I wanted to acknowledge you, Shane, for the innovation that we have at 15.5 that I think does what you're saying, but on an organizational level, which is Question Friday. So maybe, Shane, you could share a little bit about that because...
2: You know that's that's so much of my background as coming from these these experiences, these communities, these trainings that were so good at hot wiring intimacy and connection in a room of people in record time, and it's always. It's questions they give people to tell their human story because when we hear and we witness other people in their human story, we can't help but fall in love. We can't help but have that empathy, that forgiveness that like you're talking about. So, you know, we do a practice every Friday where the, the company jumps on. It's an optional meeting, but we spend 30 minutes and there's a question master or a question leader for the month. And they ask the question every Friday and we go, go into breakout rooms. How are you doing this? How are you seeing teams do this in the virtual era? Just like you
0: just did. It works the same. I host these as bonding meetings. I've got three ways. One is um, at the beginning of every meeting, we do a little sweet and sour. It's uh, less than a minute. What's going on in your life right now? Sweet and sour. And it just <laughs> sets the tone for the meeting. And then somewhere in the middle of the meeting, I make sure that we have a celebration moment where people are celebrating individuals in the organization Um, So we we boost energy in a positive way. And then at the end of the meeting, I always do a gratitude circle where it could be just one word. What are you most grateful for? So that keeps the buoyancy of the energy strong. Then we do standalone um, personal professional check-ins, just a little longer on the sweet and sour or designated intimacy questions in the small group that you're discussing. I like to try to do it in bigger group, even if it takes a little longer. You know, going in, I don't know how many people you do in your breakouts, but, you know, I find you can get 10 to 13 people doing a, a long share. It might take about a, you know, a while, but if the whole purpose of the meeting is just to do that, that's okay.
2: Yeah, we, we, we used to, before we started doing breakout rooms, we would get about 40 to 50 people sharing in 30 minutes. Sometimes we go a little over. We've now, we now kind of scaled that back and now it's more 10 to 20 people in the breakout rooms. But it is amazing because I I do love those larger groups because even if it's a, you know, a two or three sentence answer, you can still get tremendous insight into who a person is. Because I think that one, and a lot of people are terrified of remote because the first thing to go is the human elements.
0: Unless you program it. And that's what I keep telling people. Okay. So my job is a, as a coach is to program these things. And that's why we, that's why we created VirtualTeamsWin.com. Because I wanted people to, to see all the best practices. And all of those Harvard Business Review articles, all of this is in there. So you guys can go and take a look at VirtualTeamsWin. I think it'll be very, very helpful. Look I mean, yeah. to me, uh, by the way, we should do more together because it sounds like our philosophies are very inaligned. We should definitely try to find some ways to do more things.
2: Yeah, because we're looking at, okay, how do we how do we build these kinds of social technologies into software? Because it is that vulnerability. It is the sweet and sour. It is the revealing what's inside ourselves. To the people we actually work with, that is the thing that precipitates actual connection, psychological safety, we can move up Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and that is where we can give our greatest gifts. Because if we're, we're constantly covering our ass, there's no way that we're actually going to truly contribute all the things we can contribute.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the thing we've done beyond just individual teams, because we do this on a team level, we do this on our leadership team, but bringing all 200 plus employees together and then randomly splitting them out into these 10 to 15 person breakout groups creates like a, a level of, you know, it breaks down the barriers in the organization allows people to get to know everybody as, you know, it's not just like people on the engineering team versus sales. We're we're, we're all just human beings. We're all here for the same purpose and we get to know each other.
0: I do this all the time within cross-functional facilitation of so important to do at the beginning, because you need people to challenge, and anyway, yes, vulnerability is the key that opens up the bridge to empathy, and on the other side is a productive relationship.
2: So Keith, you've got the book coming out. It's when is it released? today. fantastic. where Where can people find it?
0: Everywhere. Amazon, I mean, you know, the most ubiquitous place is Amazon. very excited about it. Yeah, just, I couldn't be more thrilled. I really am. Uh, we also, I don't know, by the way, I don't know if it's still available. We had created a a free course for anybody who pre-ordered the book before the pub date that they got a, a video course, a seven-module video course. So if they run and get it quickly, I'll tell my team to keep it open for a while. If people run to for the week of the the, the launch. That's great.
1: Where can they find that? You can... Get it
0: at frozylearning.com.
1: Perfect.
2: Where do you think this is all going? Lots of new social contracts being written right now. Where do you think we're moving? Are people going to stay working remotely? Companies going to increase flexibility? Where is it all heading?
0: Well, uh, some yes and absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot of people that just won't want to go back in the same way. Only on purposeful ways. Like, what are the reasons to go back? And let's. And, of course, social engineering is going to be a part of that. Um, What I love about what we're doing is, and this is what you said earlier, if you don't, in a remote world, if you don't attend to a lot of these things, the wheels start falling off. So they have to become very purposeful. And software like yours, practices like mine, coaching like we do, all of that makes everything that a lot of people do as an art form accidentally makes it systematized and purposeful. So what I think the increasing remote work is going to increase demand for your and and our services. But at the same time, which I think is good, it's going to equalize everybody and everyone's going to want to be able to um, have a competitive advantage by engineering human capital in in a different
1: way. Um, yeah, it's like re- really rehumanizing business. I feel like a lot of humanity was taken out of business in the last number of decades, and this is the time to bring it back. Amen, amen. Well, thanks for your time, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, this has been great. Really good to reconnect. Anywhere else people can find you that they should, should look to follow?
0: I love playing on Instagram. I, I'm publishing a lot at LinkedIn, um, but I think virtual teams win, and uh, Farazi Greenlight is the name of my, my firm, Farazi Greenlight. But uh, yeah, just follow us and stay in touch. We'll, I'm sure we'll be finding ways to be on
1: people's radars. Awesome. Thanks so much, Keith. This has been great. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Shane. Thank you to our producer, counter Creative, to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts, or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 155.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you.